Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Queering Ireland 2015, which took place in Boston College in August. The conference was co-hosted by UCD Humanities Institute and St. Mary's University Halifax, and this podcast features a keynote lecture by Ethna Louvage from the University of Arizona. The paper, Homo Nationalism, Migration Controls and Queer Futures, was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. Well, I want to thank Anne and Sean and all the organisers. It's a tremendous amount of work to put on a conference like this, to clean the rooms, to buy the biscuits, to get the coffee. I mean, all the details. Amazing amount of work, so thank you very much. And thanks to all of you for turning out, being here, being ready to converse. I look forward to a wonderful conversation. Um, I was um, honored to be invited. Um, I hope I can say something useful. I'm here not as an expert, but perhaps I'm the warm-up act for the conference to come, um, to raise some questions, to begin conversations that I think will continue over the course of the next three days. So I, I, I read the... Um, theme of the conference. There were several which I loved. They were slightly different. I thought that's great. Queer Studies is doing well. Um, I wanted to address several themes of the conference by exploring the interfaces between the same-sex marriage referendum and the state's migration policies. And just to give you a bit of a frame, it is since the turn of the 20th century that nation states have taken control over people's right to cross borders. So that's relatively recent. It's political, it's historical, and that can be changed. And they use this power to continually remake the nation and the citizenry in ways that naturalize multiple hierarchies. These hierarchies operate both within the nation state and in terms of wider global relationships. So I happened to be here when the yes vote was happening and everyone was amazingly, you know, all of us celebrating. Um, But I was interested in exploring whether the yes vote affirmed, challenged, or remade state migration controls that entrench multiple inequalities. And I was also interested in what are the tools, resources, and analytic frameworks that the campaign might offer us as we go forward to thinking about social change and social justice. So I thought I would start by introducing and explaining basic key terms, these terms being homo-nationalism, necropolitics, and migration, because these are ideas that circulate in different ways in different fields, so if we have a basic shared way of talking about them, that might be helpful and put these into critical conversation through the lens of the referendum. The second part I'm going to talk about how the referendum outcome connects with the state strategies for managing diaspora, tourists, migrant workers, refugees, and asylum seekers. And this section raises critical questions and sounds very pessimistic. The conclusion suggests we should neither shy away from critical concerns nor downplay the rich experience and knowledge gained through the referendum campaign, but instead use them as tools through which to continue seeking broad-based social justice. So that's kind of going to be the arc of the talk. So we'll begin with the key terms, and Anne, if you wouldn't mind to bring up, we'll start with homonormativity. And 
It is our good fortune. Professor Lisa Dugan is in the audience. And so in the U.S. where I live, I live and work in Arizona, which is a border state where migration is an endless, endless issue that we are always dealing with. And we also have gone through the same-sex marriage referendum stuff. Um, the campaigns to recognize same-sex marriage are often described as homonormative. Professor Lisa Dugan defines homonormativity as, quote, a politics that does not contest dominant heteronormative assumptions and institutions, but upholds and sustains them, while promising the possibility of a demobilized gay constituency and a privatized, depoliticized gay culture anchored in domesticity and consumption. That's from her book, The Twilight of Equality. Same-sex marriage seems particularly homonormative since marriage is a patriarchal institution with deep roots in histories of conquest, empire, and war, and through which the state organizes multiple forms of governmentality. In these days of austerity and cutback, marriage has also become a technology to privatize rather than address some of the effects of economic restructuring. We know activists and scholars have inquired why people's ability to access basic entitlements should hinge on being married. And people have also asked questions about focusing on marriage makes invisible other kinds of family and intimate formations that deeply matter to queers and offer bases for alternative conceptions and enactments of the political. To the extent migration has been discussed in this conversation at all, people have mostly focused on making sure the state recognizes same-sex couples for purposes of family unification. And that's certainly important, but it does leave unaddressed the larger structural inequalities of migration controls as a whole. Jasbir Puar extends Dugan's framework by characterizing campaigns for same-sex marriage as homo-nationalist. And at one term, this, this registers gay and lesbian desires and efforts to become legible and recognized within key institutions of the nation-state. And she does note that this happens in ways that do seem to support rather than critique dominant economic and state logics that work through racial, gender, cultural, class, and neocolonial inequalities. Puar is writing in a U.S. context, and she asks, what does it mean to seek recognition from a state that is a major driver of neocolonialisms, of wars, of racisms, and of kinds of disasters that are literally ending people's lives? The Irish state by no means has the same global clout as the U.S., but I think we do need to ask about the ways that the Irish state shares these logics and participates in these processes. So these kinds of concerns map onto a discussion that a recent edited collection has called Queer Necropolitics. Ashil Mbembe is credited with the term necropolitics, and it refers to the idea of death world, basically a death world. In turn, his work is an intervention into discussions of biopolitics, a concept attributed to Michel Foucault. And it's, that's basically the argument that the power of the sovereign went from either killing you or letting you live to actively fostering, enhancing, 
and protecting the life of favored populations. But the other side of the coin is who you let die. It doesn't mean you kill them. So it's kind of a subtle distinction, right? Not actively killing, but creating or tolerating conditions that ensure certain groups' capacities are diminished. Their bodies and spirits get worn out and their lives are cut short. And the announcement for this conference that Anne sent me made reference to many of these kinds of conditions of people's lives being cut short and being worn down, which often correlate with economic, sexual, gender, racial, ethnic, and other hierarchies. The collection Queer Necropolitics wants to expand the discussion by basically asking what does queerness bring to the discussion of necropolitics and vice versa. And they're especially interested in the ways that gay and lesbian activisms grounded in liberal models of rights and recognition may enable forms of violence that are necropolitical. So if we put all these kind of different pieces together, the question that emerges is whether homonationalism in the form of supporting same-sex marriage involves complicity in the unfostered lives, suffering, and deaths of others, including queers who are not white, middle-class, citizen, relatively gender-normative, and able-bodied. And one way I was interested in thinking about this was really looking at how the same-sex marriage referendum spoke to or articulated with Irish state migration controls. We generally think of state migration controls as normal, natural, and timeless. So there's your hegemony at work, because in fact, all of those are highly disputable, but we just think, oh, it's normal, it's natural, of course the state controls migration. Well, no, of course, it's really recent. States began to control migration only since the turn of the 20th century, roughly speaking, right? Migration controls, and there's a huge lid on this, it is a means through which states literally and symbolically remake ideas of nation and citizenry and recreate and naturalize differences and inequalities among the citizenry and between citizens and migrants. This happens also in a global context. Our current global world divided into sovereign nation states emerged from processes of slavery. That must be an underline, is it? <laughs> slavery, global capitalism, <laughs> and although all nation states are supposedly equal, the hierarchies through which the global order emerged ensure inequalities among nation states. And we all know this, right? Like there's lots of inequalities, but we all talk like everybody, all the states are equal. Not so. Just keep repeating and replaying the inequality. The idea individual states should control migration across their borders in a manner that serves their national interest rather than taking into account global inequalities and historical legacies, is one of the primary means through which global northern states reproduce inequalities both on a world scale and within their own nation states. So that's kind of the background, but in terms of nuts and bolts, states actually have multiple regimes for controlling migration. And this is because migration control isn't simply include-exclude. That's kind of a binary that's not accurate for how things work. It's more accurate to think it creates multiple complicated forms of differential inclusion and exclusion. 
In simple terms, migration controls are about distributing groups of people so as to achieve certain goals while avoiding negative outcomes. I know that sounds really bureaucratic, but it's actually the best summary I ever read by a Foucault scholar. So concretely in Ireland, the goals of migration management are accept and distribute populations so as to foster economic growth and the thing to avoid through the policies are social welfare obligations of any kind, mm -hmm. right? And meanwhile, a cursory tip of the hat to human rights, but not really, just a tip, right? So that is basically the logic of Irish and many countries' migration controls. Within this framework, Irish emigrants and the diaspora are viewed and managed as global extensions of the Irish nation, while immigrants, especially from outside the EEA, are treated primarily as threats or problems. Inequalities at global, national, and local scales and the ways that Irish state policies play into them are both ignored and reproduced by this framework. So let's cross-cut all this with the same-sex marriage referendum. And I want to talk first about the diaspora, who were the migrants most prominent in the same-sex marriage campaign. The diaspora includes Irish emigrants living overseas, Irish passport holders, and Irish-descended people. So it's kind of a mix of who are we talking about. The state's diaspora policy is not focused on keeping these folks out, but rather responding to them in terms of, first of all, obligations toward overseas citizens, and secondly, particularly since 2008, trying to harness them as resources to foster economic growth. Historically in Ireland, as I think all of you know, the equation of homosexuality with foreignness has been so deeply entrenched that for many decades, Irish people who identified as gay or lesbian often felt they needed to migrate. And the connections between Irishness, LGBT identity, and diaspora have been really very literal and kind of unique. Scholars including Tina O'Toole and Ed Madden have richly explored this. The events of the referendum were to remap Irish diaspora and queerness into a configuration that I think we can call homo-nationalizing the diaspora. Most obviously, the remapping occurred as overseas Irish people returned to vote in the referendum. That's an image you're all familiar, most of you are familiar with. A number of non-voting eligible immigrants also returned to share the experience. And it wasn't just self-identified lesbians and gay men who returned, but self-identified heterosexual people, and then people who are not identified in any particular way. So a range of folks returned to do this. And people returned not just on their own behalf, but as representatives of those who could not vote, but were hoping for a yes vote. For example, these folks, the Be My Yes vote and that. A full accounting of the return to vote is beyond the scope of the time that I have, and besides, we should talk more rather than we do this. So I'm going to just offer a few remarks. On one hand, the return to vote yes was extremely moving, and it's going to forever alter how we think about queer diaspora. Colm O'Regan captured that sense of amazing magic with his tweet, the home to vote, is like when you're watching The Hobbit and an army of elves you've forgotten from earlier in the film arrive over a hill. 
The fact that self-identified Irish gay and lesbian emigrants were portrayed in the media was also really unprecedented. And these migrants describe connections between being gay and lesbian and migration that were very important. For example, they describe being, how being gay and lesbian contributed to feeling pushed to migrate and the pain and conflicting identifications that this created. They also described feeling compelled to return to vote yes so as to contribute toward creating an Ireland where people would not feel the need to emigrate because of being gay or lesbian and an Ireland to which they as migrants might be able to return in the future including to settle down and form families with same-sex partners and have children. I mean, the works, right? It was the whole story. <laughs> Although the return of the diaspora was extraordinary and offered important opportunity for connections, sorry, for public discussion about connections between queerness and migration, it was also clear the return meshed fairly easily with the state's strategy of using the diaspora for neoliberal economic growth. And one measure of that might be that Martin Shanahan, the CEO of IDA, said in an Irish Times interview, quote, a yes vote would be in the state's economic interest, while a no vote against same-sex marriage would send a negative signal to the world of international business. And he was particularly talking about US businesses, actually. Furthermore, the mainstream representation of those who returned seemed to affirm critics' concerns about homonormativity. For example, those who returned were overwhelmingly portrayed as, and I'm not saying they were, but they are shown as, white folks, pretty gender normative, and with some degree of resources, and as attached to Ireland based on birth and ancestry. Media images showed them queuing at airports, taking boats, and riding buses in trains in ways that are completely associated with state-authorized crossing of borders. The undocumented and the poor could not and did not feature, nor did people who are visibly of color. Material conditions that may have contributed to emigration, including the recession, the IMF bailout, and austerity, were acknowledged by very few. <coughs> The referendum did not directly affect the diaspora's ability to legally cross borders. Instead, returnees, many returnees, suggested it enhanced the likelihood they would return to live in Ireland in the future. In ways that fit with the state's essentialized model of Irishness, homeland, and territorializing division of the world, and particularly its focus on connectivity with the diaspora as a means to generate capital. There were moments when the diaspora's return revealed fissures between them and the state's policies, and most obviously this had to do with voting. By returning to vote, they signaled the power of the diaspora as a group demanding to be heard. They used their return to raise again the demand for an emigrant vote. And I was kind of fascinated by returning to vote not just for themselves, but on behalf of those who couldn't. It seemed like a moment of disrupting the logic of the vote as a private property that you own and use for your own interests. On the other hand, voting is deeply associated with citizen status. So whether this may eventually support politics as usual or open up something unexpected is something we don't know, but it bears watching. I'm interested to see what's going to happen with this. Overall, the return of the diaspora seemed to have 
affirm state imaginaries of bounded nation, whiteness, and neoliberal economics that underpin state migration policies. And the fact other categories of migrants were rendered completely invisible by the referendum process seemed to further shore up these outcomes. So let me talk to you about tourists briefly. Emigrants who returned to vote were hailed under the state's category of diaspora, but they were also highly legible as tourists, which is another category of sanctioned mobility on which the state's economic strategy has depended for decades. In fact, as we all know, the state has developed a very dense apparatus to foster that kind of travel across borders. Because tourists bring capital to Ireland, but they don't stay, they don't work, and they don't demand social welfare. So they're really who people love to have come as moving people across a border. Not just anyone can be a tourist. The state has a very lengthy list of countries whose nationals do not need a visa to travel to Ireland, including for tourism. And they also have a second lengthy list of countries whose nationals do need visas. Effectively, the list mapped geopolitical relationships and hierarchies. And as we know, the referendum became thoroughly linked with state efforts to promote tourist mobility. The Monday after the referendum... (laughs) So the Irish Examiner's lead story announced the government is planning a huge tourism promotion this summer to tap into the spending power of the pink euro, pound and dollar, following what it describes as the amazing international goodwill generated by the gay marriage vote. Tourism Ireland this weekend launched a campaign to encourage gay visitors to travel here for weddings and honeymoons. And Falta Ireland's Alex Connolly said work is underway to tap the potential of gay and lesbian tourism. And the quote from him is, there is a pink pound and a pink euro, and they tend to be more affluent and with more disposable income, and it is a market we want more of. Thank you very much, right? In short, not only did the referendum become directly linked to the state's tourism strategy in key markets that reflect geopolitical ties and hierarchies, but it was also explicitly linked, linked to weddings as normalizing processes and tied to commodity consumption and to stereotypes of gay men and lesbians as likely to have more disposable income. We do know tourism has enduring connections with histories of empire, racialization, patriarchy, and global capitalism. And there is a scholarship that talks about how gay and lesbian tourism fits into these larger histories including in terms of marriage. We need to critically situate the Irish state's plans to use the referendum as a marketing strategy in relation to that broader scholarship and in relation to questions of necropolitics and really very explicitly like which queer lives are supported and fostered and who's become ignored, invisible, or further shredded through these kinds of strategies. Now, the state's desire to cultivate tourist mobility greatly contrasts with its approach toward migrant workers, who are a key part of Ireland's workforce, including in sectors that serve these same tourists. I'm staying in a hotel, and every single worker is a a migrant, right? I mean, this is in so many sectors in the economy. Policies toward migrant workers have undergone several shifts, and as most of you know, the current system tries to source as many migrant workers as possible from within the EEA. (coughs) Excuse me. 
Since 2014, the main mechanism by which non-EEA nationals may enter Ireland for employment is through the employment permit system that has two class-differentiated tracks. And there are also investor and entrepreneur tracks. For non-EEA nationals who cannot meet the stringent requirements associated with these tracks, possibilities for legal admission through work are extremely limited. Getting and keeping work and the terms and conditions under which people are working remains extremely challenging for most people. Being a migrant further compounds worker vulnerabilities. There have been lots of studies that show migrants tend to be concentrated in specific sectors, are more vulnerable to losing jobs, confront high levels of racism and discrimination, have few avenues to seek redress or confront exploitative employers and often cannot access social protection. And the employment permit system has routed literally thousands into undocumented status, which makes them more exploitable. All of this kind of cross-cuts with Ireland's opaque and ungenerous family reunification system. Ireland's family reunification policies have been criticised for years. Um, like the grounds include they're non-transparent, the minister has extraordinary degrees of discretion, there's no process to appeal a refusal, it's the most ungenerous in Europe, blah, blah, blah. I mean, just endless, endless problems with the family reunification system. In December 2013, the Department of Justice published new policy guidelines concerning non-EEA family reunification. And these have not become law, but they do provide a window into how the department is thinking about and administering family that includes migrants. The document actually is very flexible about who counts as a family. It says it does not try to create a rigid definition of family, but, quote, there must be deemed to exist a sliding scale of relationships, which I think is absolutely fascinating. It defines family also as A, immediate family, B, parents, and C, other family. And since 2011, same-sex couples have been included under immediate family. The recognition of same-sex marriage may further speed up some people's admission under that category. But I think this is what's important. Even if the state recognizes you as being a family, it doesn't mean you have the right to reunify. Instead, the state gets to decide if national interest outweighs your family-based claims. So the report says, quote, it is important to not confuse the right to family life with the right to family reunification. Interesting. Migrants can apply for family reunification, but that does, quote, not necessarily mean the correct policy response is to facilitate the request. Instead, the Irish Naturalization and Immigration Service has to, quote, establish there is a genuine family relationship, and furthermore, quote, there is no threat to public policy, public security, or public health, and there is no abusive family reunification arrangements, and there is not an undue burden placed on the taxpayer. And the document particularly stresses the financial, quote, it is not proposed family reunification should become purely financial assessments, but the state cannot be regarded as having an obligation to subsidize the family concerned. There's lots more interesting stuff in that document that is well worth reading and thinking about. But in short, the state expresses flexibility about recognizing who counts as a family. 
but on the grounds of national interest, which can be almost endlessly broadly interpreted. The state can refuse to reunify recognized families, or it can deport people even when it tears apart recognized families. And the document tries to insulate the state from critiques or activisms by describing migration not as a right, but as a gift conferred by the state, which is a really stunning assertion. The document tries to foreclose any challenges based on social justice or rights by claiming this is a gift, and it helps to cement family, including same-sex family, as a means to shore up the citizen-migrant distinction and a range of inequalities. And this really was something not addressed by the referendum, but seems to be something we might want to talk about at this stage. Even while the same-sex marriage referendum was unfolding, the so-called Mediterranean crisis was also unfolding. And this highlighted more kinds of border crossings that were also not welcome or enabled. And as you all know, the crisis involved hundreds of thousands of migrants seeking to enter Europe by boat, with thousands drowning in the process. So those were the boat to vote, and those are migrants. For those, most of you already recognize those pictures. Mm -hmm. Although characterized as a crisis, the situation was actually symptomatic of larger interlocking issues with deeply necropolitical implications. As of June of this year, some 60 million people worldwide have been driven across international borders by conditions that include war, massive dislocation due to shifts in the global economy, and environmental disasters. EU and global northern state policies have certainly directly contributed to these situations, and yet these countries have done little to offer an adequate response. Further compounding displaced people's difficulties, restrictive immigration and asylum laws mean there are few channels to legally cross borders. Literally, there isn't a route to legal entry for most people. So they say, well, why don't they enter legally? Well, because it's not possible. The law does not make it possible. It's very simple. As a result, people have resorted to dangerous crossings arranged by smugglers. The fortress Europe mentality has, for decades has shaped EU responses to displaced people, and we saw this over and over again. So the initial response was these are, quote, illegal immigrants, and the smugglers are the problems, and we should destroy the smugglers' boats, and let's, you know, thicken the walls and, and continue the fortress Europe policies. Numerous individuals and organizations have challenged this perspective. For example, Enar Ireland described, quote, the crisis did not start with the deaths in the Mediterranean. What we are witnessing is, is a symptom of a deeper crisis in which some EU countries have played a significant part. Francois Crepeau, the UN Special Reporter on Migrants, made direct connections between restrictive immigration law, migrants turned towards smugglers, and resulting death. Quote, if we don't provide an official mechanism for displaced people to find somewhere to settle, they will resort to smugglers. The inaction of Europe is what creates the market for smugglers. Now, those who've been following the news know that Ireland has committed to taking in 520 program refugees in the period 2015 to 16 and 600 Syrians and Eritreans. 
So it's not nothing, but when we take into account the numbers in flight and take into account the response by countries who have far less resources, for example, Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan have three, are sheltering three million people, right? Like, let's get some perspective on what's possible and who could step up here. And perhaps even more worrying is that Ireland's agreement to accept that small number of displaced people remains tied to vigorously affirming and further extending the fortress Europe logics that really are major contributors to this disaster in the first place. And it was hard to miss that all of this is happening at the same time that numerous commentators in very self-congratulatory ways describe the outcome of the same-sex marriage referendum as a message of hope for oppressed LGBT people around the world. And that really made me think the message of hope does not extend to welcoming actual people seeking asylum, including migrants crossing the Mediterranean, some of whom are surely queer and all of whom merit some assistance. It seemed like the, maybe the referendum was a message of hope for people who would remain in place rather than moving and seeking refuge. Now, Fortress Europe measures have made it virtually impossible to reach Ireland to apply for asylum. So the number like this year of asylum seekers is 1,400, something like that, which is extraordinarily small. And it is because Fortress Europe measures keep them out, though it's described as a 50% increase over last year. Oh, panic, right? Like, oh my God, that's it? You know, Fortress Europe is alive and well. So a handful of people have made it here to seek asylum. These folks find themselves confined to the direct provision system, which strips them of valued roles and identities, and it immiserates and segregates them. They're barred from paid employment and navigate a bureaucratic maze that drags on for years. The numerous necropolitical conditions that confront them throughout the asylum process have been widely documented. And so I won't recap them here. I suspect many of you know about this and are actually involved in those activisms. Irish law allows people to claim asylum because of persecution for sexual orientation or gender identity, and yet the record is migrants trying to do so face numerous hurdles, including disbelief among officials, difficulties documenting their LGBTQ status, bullying and ostracism in direct provision, lack of understanding of their situation among mainstream LGBT groups, and more. The same-sex marriage campaign did not make reference to the experiences of asylum seekers, LGBT or otherwise, nor did it make connections to the current campaign by asylum seekers and their allies who are seeking a complete end to direct provision, along with the right to paid employment, access to residency, access to third-level education, and an end to deportation. The campaign did not engage asylum seeker concerns, such as reflected in this tweet, if you wouldn't mind, Dan. Elon Rierland's support for marriage equality is not universal. He does not support marriage equality for African asylum seekers. Rierland and his cronies have no problem tearing African families apart by deporting one partner or parent, usually the husband or father. No marriage equality for asylum seekers. Equality only applies to citizens. This comment offers a critical reminder that the rights and protections offered by marriage, in which same-sex couples are now included, both stop at and remake the border. 
the fact asylum seekers and migrants' marriages don't have to be valued means marriage is now even more a tool for officials to shore up distinctions between citizens and migrants. And we also should think about families that include both citizens and migrants who are dealing with the impact of these policies that are implemented in ways that, as that tweet notes, articulate gender and racial as well as nationality hierarchies. So let me just bring this together a little bit around some thoughts on which we can build a discussion. The referendum process reflects how deeply queers have longed to be attached to the nation. Same-sex marriage became a critical mechanism for such attachment with all the social justice conundrums and yet practical benefits for some that are entailed. White, able-bodied, relatively gender-normative citizen people became the face of the same-sex marriage campaign and the need for same-sex marriage was largely expressed in terms of their needs and pain. White diasporics moving across borders to vote yes affirmed and further naturalized an articulation of national and global that's deeply rooted in whiteness and neoliberalism. The process reinforced the connectivity of the white diaspora with the Irish nation-state, which is a major goal of the state's strategy, and did so without jeopardizing inward investment. The process also opened the door for the state to solicit capital-generating tourist bodies to travel temporarily to Ireland and leave but the referendum did little to challenge or reorient Ireland's migrant worker, migrant family, and refugee asylum regimes away from their necropolitical fortress Europe logics that remain an engine for remaking multiple inequalities. And all of this raises questions about which we should be concerned, but the campaign also produced promising possibilities on which to reorient common understandings of homonationalism and necropolitics, and on which to continue building social justice movements. I'm going to conclude by talking about how concerns and possibilities raised by the YES campaign connect to migrant justice struggles and social justice struggles more generally. So one area of concern and possibility, I think, has to do with queer desire for the nation-state. This seems especially important because the desire for a certain kind of nation and support for state migration controls are simply deeply interconnected. The same-sex marriage campaign did not criticize the inherent violence of nations or states, including as reflected in their migration and asylum regimes, but rather sought to incorporate same-sex couples into the Irish state through marriage. And there are many questions we need to ask about queer desires for such incorporation, including the kinds of questions posed by debates on homonationalism and necropolitics. On the other hand, achieving gay and lesbian incorporation into the nation-state through marriage entail processes and experiences that seem worth further exploring and thinking about how to build on. For example, achieving a yes vote required interpolating every voter or potential voter as if not queer, than as a friend or relative of a queer. The resoundingly affirmative yes vote that crossed class, age, regional, and many other boundaries shows the great success of this strategy. Queers were remapped as family, 
family was remapped as including queers, and everybody was homo-nationalized. And really, when after I had a sentence in here right that said, and if homo-nationalism was a teddy bear, I wanted to clutch it to my breast. I mean, it was so amazing, right? So this is the kind of complexity of the situation. Melissa White's work offers promising possibilities for further analyzing these experiences. Drawing on Spivak, White argues the nation is something queers, quote, can't not want. Her phrasing highlights the ambivalence of wanting and invites us to explore this ambivalent wanting. For example, a la Lauren Balan, what does it mean to want things that contribute to our own and other suffering? Are there other ways to want? Can we want the nation in ways that support sexual, gender, economic, racial, geopolitical justice? Or is this truly a conundrum because nations and states are founded on these inequalities? Can we have nation and not have these inequalities? One place I see the question being explored is in Native American queer studies, but it made me think that Queering Ireland projects really do have something helpful to contribute here. Matters of fostered and unfostered lives and painful experiences of necropolitics are wrapped up in the question of why we can't not want the nation and whether we can want it differently. Quoting here from the Queer Necropolitics book, if queer necropolitics is a concept metaphor that illuminates and connects a range of spectacular and mundane forms of killing and letting die, and that's the end of the quote, then the testimonies offered by thousands of people from all walks of life about why the referendum mattered, regardless of marriage, provided moving lessons about the ways that gay, lesbian, and queer life involves innumerable mundane and spectacular forms of being let die, if not directly killed. When we frame the desire for same-sex marriage simply as a form of homo-nationalism that supports the necropolitical treatment of others, I'm worried that we may not have respectfully listened to and learned from these testimonies. At the same time, I did note the necropolitical experiences people described were primarily framed as problems of homophobia and, to a lesser extent, transphobia. The ways economic struggles, racism, sexism, migrant status, physical ability, and other issues intersect with homophobia and transphobia to generate spectacular and mundane forms of being let die received much less attention, and I think we need to remedy that. Or I was also thinking of Sarah Ahmed's book, The Promise of Happiness, like whose pain and suffering gets attention and whose doesn't, just to put it that way much more simply perhaps, right? Many who supported the same-sex campaign actively suggested links to other struggles, and that's something else inspiring on which to build. And here I want to focus briefly on links that migrants and their allies made between the Yes campaign migrant issues and other social struggles. And I'm building on some of the writings and the works of people in this room who I hope will speak up, pitch in, and I'm not trying to speak for people. But I want to highlight the linkages because the mainstream media's focus on diaspora, combined with its complete silence and inattention to other categories of migrant, contributed to the normalizing and necropolitical effects of the referendum. And yet, even though they were ignored, queer migrants were present, 
contributed to the Yes campaign and offered perspectives that are important to consider. For example, some LGBT asylum seekers from Balsaskin took time and used their extremely limited resources to travel to photo calls and launches in support of the referendum. Some wore Yes t-shirts and buttons in public spaces. And when they were asked, why did you participate? They said the outcome of the campaign also affects their future possibilities. Migrant serving organizations, including the Migrant Rights Centre Ireland, the <clears throat> Immigrant Council of Ireland, the Irish Refugee Council, and many others, made connections between migrant struggles and the referendum. Some, like the Anti-Racism Network, directly pushed back against the whitewashing and the inattention to migrants by publicly asserting that Ireland's migrant communities include LGBT people. And most of you know the ARN also organized a picnic in the Phoenix Park to support the referendum and called for the yes vote as a step towards social justice that addresses multiple intersecting inequalities. And I just want to put up a quote from one of their posts which I think gives us a lot of helpful information that we need to think about. This referendum is about more than same-sex marriage for those of us who are calling for a yes vote in the migrant communities. Voting yes on Friday <coughs> excuse me, is about opening up to the other who may be different from you or me. It is about overcoming suspicion of anyone who doesn't behave or look like, quote, us. Racial and ethnic minorities in this country know what it feels like to be discriminated against and held suspect because of our skin color, our accent, our way of life, our religion. <coughs> Voting yes will help this country that is now our home to move away from the intolerant Ireland that was not a place for non-white people and closer to a future where we can all be accepted as we are. And in this statement, I appreciate the referendum is not an end point, but an important step in multiple struggles for justice. I want to end with a final image rather than analysis that invites us to clearly imagine possibilities of justice for all. And this is actually not from the Yes campaign, but it evokes for me all the things I was thinking about as I was following the campaign. The image was created by a group <coughs> associated with the Migrant Rights Centre Ireland. It's a sign on a Dublin wall, and it reads, Happy St. Patrick's Day to the undocumented in the USA from the undocumented in Ireland. And I regard this as a highly queer image that makes me very happy, actually, I have to admit. Mm -hmm. Queer is not just a synonym for LGBT people, though, though it is that, but it is also a critical analytic. And in my work on queer migration, I use queer as a place marker for lives and experiences that cannot be narrated within conventional categories, but are nonetheless there. And I think all the image is queer in all of those ways. First of all, undocumented migrants include self-identified queers, and being queer expands one chance of being routed into undocumented status. Thus, although the image does not explicitly include the words queer or LGBT, I can't look at it without thinking of the undocumented queer migrants I have known. And these include undocumented Irish queers in the United States, who are not among the diaspora who return to vote, 
But that doesn't mean they weren't watching and weren't engaged, even if they were not representable. Second, I appreciate that the image draws attention to undocumented migrants who are on the receiving end of some of the most necropolitical strategies imaginable, and yet they're a group whose suffering and death we're supposed to accept and naturalize as the price of migration controls. Nicholas de Geneva aptly describes how undocumented status is deeply interwoven with necropolitics. And I also put that up as a slide because it is very dense, so I hope you wouldn't mind. It says the social space of illegality is an erasure of legal personhood, a space of forced invisibility, exclusion, subjugation, and repression that materializes in the form of real effects ranging from hunger to unemployment or more typically severe exploitation to violence to death. Immigration politics nullify the legitimacy of certain kinship ties. Here he's referring to the concept of social death by Orlando Patterson and issues of slavery, which certainly tie back to rec who's recognized and does it count. Immigration politics nullified the legitimacy of certain kinship ties. Undocumented migrants experience enforced clandestinity. The transformation of mundane activities such as working, driving, or traveling into illicit acts. They experience restricted physical mobility that signifies a measure of captivity and social death and an enforced orientation <coughs> to the present and the revocability of the promise of the future. It's a dense quote, but a really good summary of all the scholarship on the kind of conditions, what does it mean to live as an undocumented person. The vibrant image on a Dublin wall impels us to continue challenging social conditions and power relations that sanction these kinds of effects. And finally, as a queer analytic, that image asks us to imagine solidarities that are based on both similarities and differences. Undocumented migrants are sending a message to undocumented migrants. So at first you look and you think, oh, that's a similarity. Yet the migrants sending the message are from many countries and based in Ireland. While the migrants being addressed are Irish emigrants based in the United States, which really introduces complicated differences. Imagining solidarities based on similarities and differences seems to me a beautifully queer challenge. And it is one the Irish state refuses to engage. Instead, we watch the Taoiseach do his annual St. Patrick's Day pilgrimage with the Potter Shamrocks to the White House, and then to plead for clemency for the undocumented Irish. And then he goes home and participates in legislation to criminalize the undocumented here, right? You all know about that. Although the state refuses to think about solidarities between these groups, I don't think we need to. In fact, we mustn't. We need to think about solidarities. In conclusion then, and this is a weak conclusion but more to just open the conversation, holding in our mind's eye the possibility of solidarities based on similarities and difference, and building on both the concerns and the resources generated by the same-sex marriage campaign, including as it interfaced with state migration controls. How do we continue to imagine and enact social justice movements that challenge necropolitical conditions in all their forms. And I think not just for this talk, but the next three days, that's kind of what we're going to be talking about. And I have a final slide, Anne, if you wouldn't mind to put it up. And it's about imagining differently the 
This is by Fabiana Rodriguez. She's an she has been an undocumented queer um, woman of color artist in the United States. She's part of a group called Culture Strike, and they try to just change our imaginaries. And they use the image of the monarch butterfly. Um, as that which crosses borders without being criminalized. Mm -hmm. And one state migration is actually really normal. You know, it's the state that has turned it into this aberrant thing we need to deal with. And then, of course, she puts in all the different little queer families and family configurations for us to think about. Um, so I did want to end with that image, but let you know who is the, the artist for this image. Thank you. Thank you.